This morning we're going to be continuing in a sermon series entitled Together. So far we've seen that together we grow in the Lord. While you should do your own individual reading and studying of the Word of God, the greatest growth takes place when we study the Word of God together. Whether it be in a corporate situation like a worship service or a Sunday school or a discipleship class or a small group. So we saw together we grow in the Lord. And then last week we saw together we can win a lost and dying world to Jesus. Locally, regionally, nationally, globally, together, working together, we can share Jesus with every person of every face, race, and place in our planet. Today, we're looking at together in ordinances. We're going to look, talk a little bit about baptism and the Lord's Supper and how those are ordinances that should be practiced together in the community of faith. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 14. The words of Dr. Luke as he talks about an incident in the life of Jesus. When the hour was come, Jesus sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Verse 14. And he said to them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And then verse 19, he took bread and gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance to me. Likewise also the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new testament. This cup is the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. I heard the story about a young pastor who was extremely nervous. This was his first church, and he was getting ready on this particular Sunday to lead his church in the observance of the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That morning, he was performing a baptism service. That evening, he was going to perform the Lord's Supper. But being young and being nervous and this being his first time, he got a little foggy-headed. That can happen sometimes. And he misstated a little bit. That can happen sometimes. As he had the person in the water preparing to baptize them, he raised his hand and he said, In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. And drink it all in remembrance of me. (laughs) Oh, we sometimes forget. Well, our Lord Jesus began his ministry with the ordinance of baptism. And he closed his ministry with the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. 
Now, both of these ordinances are symbolic by nature. They're a visualization, if you will, of the gospel message, the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. Now, both of these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table, were instituted by Jesus. They were later taught by the apostles and practiced by the early church. Both of these ordinances have no grace-giving elements to them or in them. Listen to me. Both of these ordinances, while they're important, they have no grace-giving elements to them or in them. Simply put, baptism cannot save you or add to your salvation. The Lord's table cannot save you nor add to your salvation. They cannot justify or sanctify anybody. But they are important. And baptism and the Lord's table are to be practiced. They're ordinances that are to be practiced in what I call the community of faith. They're not to be done alone. They're not to be done in private. They're to be done together in a public situation. So without further ado, let's look at these two ordinances. Let's look at what they mean and how we are to practice them together as a church family. Now let's talk about baptism first, if we can. Now, we know from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River and God the Father was pleased. When Jesus began his public ministry at age 30, he came to John the Baptist, a journey that was about 60 miles by foot. And he came to John and requested John the baptizer to baptize him. John hesitated at first. Then John complied with Jesus' request. And when Jesus was baptized, the Bible says the heavens opened. And a dove, symbolic of the Spirit of God, came and rested on Jesus' shoulder. And the Father spoke. That is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So we know that Jesus was baptized. We also know that the disciples of Jesus, from John chapter 4, verse 2, were baptized. We also know that the disciples also baptized others. We also know from the Gospel of Matthew that baptism is a very important part of the Great Commission that we are to bring men and women to Jesus, and, once, and upon their profession of faith, we are to baptize them. So baptism is clearly presented in the Gospels. And then it's built upon in the book of Acts. Now, listen to me, and I told you this last week. The book of Acts is a history book. It's the history of the church. It's not a theology book. 
it does have some theology in it. But it's a history book by and large. The problems that we have today is many people take the book of Acts as being a theological book. And when you do that, you come up with some, I think, some erroneous doctrines. Okay? But in the book of Acts, the early church stressed and emphasized baptism. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, we read about how Philip, after he preached the gospel message and people respond to it, performed a baptism service in Samaria. It says, when they believed, speaking of the Samaritans, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, baptized both men and women. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. In Acts chapter 8, verse 37 and 38, once again, Philip, on a special mission of the Lord that we talked about last week, encountered an Ethiopian. He brought the Ethiopian to Jesus, and then he did what? He baptized him. Acts chapter 8, 37 and 38. And Philip said, If you believe us with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the Ethiopian answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the Ethiopian, and he baptized him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 18, the Apostle Paul, upon receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, it says in Acts 19, And immediately there fell from his eyes as if they had been scales, and he received sight forwith, and he arose and was baptized. Remember when Paul got saved on the Damascus road? He was Saul of Tarsus. The Lord blinded him. He opened his spiritual eyes and closed his physical eyes. And Paul was a blind man, and when Paul received his physical sight back, the first thing he was instructed to do was what? To arise and go get what? Baptized. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. It says that the Corinthians, upon hearing the word of God and responding to the word of God, were baptized. Acts 18, verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with his entire family. And many of the Corinthians, upon hearing the gospel, believed it. And were baptized. Acts 22, verses 15 and 16. It talks about how the Jews, upon receiving the Lord, wanted to be baptized. It says in Acts 22, verse 15 and 16, For thou shalt be as witnesses unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why do you wait, Paul said? Be baptized. Now, I could go on and on, but I think you see the point. Baptism is an important ordinance. It was to Jesus, it was to the disciples, it was to the early church, it was to the Apostle Paul, and to all of those who followed in ministry. Now, baptism, and let me say this again, does not save anybody. Baptism is is an evidence, a testimony, a profession that you have been saved. 
Baptism never proceeds salvation. It always follows salvation. You've got to get the order right. You get saved, born again, then you get baptized. You don't get baptized, then born again. You get born again and then baptized. We also see that baptism is a public identification with Jesus Christ, as I said earlier. It's symbolic. It's a, it's a testimony that you have been born again, that you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord. It's a testimony. It's a pledge of allegiance to the Lamb of God publicly. You see, sometimes you see during sports seasons that fans will wear the jersey of their favorite team. Now, the jersey is a statement. If you wear a Packer jersey, it's a statement that you probably like the Packers, right? If you wear a Yankee jersey, that's a statement that you probably like the New York Yankees. Baptism is a public statement that I am a fan, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. The scriptures also teach that baptism is always by immersion. It's never by drizzling or sprinkling in the Bible. In fact, the Greek word from which we get baptism literally means to be covered or to be overwhelmed with water. Okay? So the word baptismo means to be covered or to be overwhelmed with water. Now, it's important that we understand about baptism, and some of you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, this is, this is a message for a first grader. <laughs> I mean, I'm a mature Christian, Pastor. I've heard this stuff before. Well, I'm glad you have. <laughs> but you know, simple things sometimes get complex. And elementary things sometimes can be confusing because many preachers and churches make it that way. That's why it's always good just to go back sometimes and break something down so we can reaffirm that we understand it. So when it comes to baptism, let's be perfectly clear. Baptism is not a sacrament. It's not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. Because sacraments imply the giving of grace. And ordinances do not impart any grace. They cannot justify you, save you. They cannot sanctify you, make you more like Jesus. But they're important. Because the word ordinance means to be ordered of. And who ordered the ordinances? Jesus Christ. So understand, baptism is not a sacrament. It can give no grace. Baptism is not for non-believers, secondly. It's for those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You do not baptize non-believers nor do you baptize people who cannot understand what it means to believe. Yes, sir? 
Baptist, Pastor, I see, I see your hand up, Pastor, Pastor. What about infant baptism? Well, what about it? There's no scriptural validity for that. You can dedicate children to the Lord, but you shouldn't baptize children because baptism is always about what? Help me out. Salvation. And unless a child can understand what it means, it's confusing to a child later. As I said, baptism's always by immersion. Because why, why, Pastor, why does it have to be by submersion? Because it's symbolic, remember? What is it symbolic of? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of you and I. You know when we get saved, we are buried. The old man you and I used to be at salvation is buried. He ceases to be. And what comes up is a new man. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away, he's buried, and the things become new. A new man comes. And when you see someone baptized, why do you think we lower them? You ever watch someone, Sam baptizes, you put him down? What is that picture of? The death of the old man. The old man's dead. When you bring them up, you know what that's a picture of? A new man has been born. That's why we say if your salvation hasn't changed you, you need to change your salvation. Because salvation is about the burying of the old man and the resurrection of the new man. And that's what baptism's a picture of. Also, baptism is an act of submission, obedience, and allegiance. When you get baptized, you're being obedient to the Lord who said we should be baptized. You're showing submission to the Lord by doing what He tells you to do. You're giving allegiance to the Lord publicly. That's your uniform. I'm a follower of Christ. Do you know what the early church, when you would baptize the early church, they, the people who were baptized used to shout out? They used to be shouting in the early church. They come up out of the water. They'd say, Jesus is Lord. They weren't ashamed of Jesus. They shouted out, Jesus is Lord, when they come out of that water, because he was. He was Lord of their life. Do you understand baptism? I heard the story about a machinist who worked for Ford Motor Company in Detroit, Michigan, and he got saved. And when he got saved, he decided that he was going to return to his shop all of the tools <laughs> and all the parts he had stolen through the years. And it, it was a considerable amount. It was a pickup truck full. And when the foreman saw him bringing all this stuff back, he asked him, what in the world are you doing? And he said, I got saved. And I'm, I got saved, I'm a new man. I just got baptized. I'm bringing all this stuff back. It ain't mine, it's yours. Well, the foreman had never seen anything like this before. He called Henry Ford and said, Mr. Ford, I don't know what to do with this fellow. He claims to have got saved and baptized. And he says he needs to bring all this stuff back because now he's an honest man. And Mr. Ford is quoted as saying this, if baptism will make a man, 
If baptism will make a man honest, then let's baptize the whole plant. <laughs> well, you know, baptism didn't do it, but being born again did. And so I pause right here and ask you a question. Have you been baptized? If not, why not? What's holding you back? Baptism does not save you, but it is the first step of obedience with somebody who's given their life to Jesus. A public declaration that Jesus is mine and I am his. You say, well, Pastor, I, I got saved when I was five and then I got re-saved when I was 25. Do I need to be baptized again? Yeah. If your salvation at age 25 was your real salvation, then you need to be baptized again. Baptism again. A public identification with Jesus Christ. A symbolic ordinance that I have died and I've risen again as a new man. Just like my Lord was crucified and buried and rose again, I have too. Now let's look at the second ordinance very quickly. And that's the ordinance of communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, I told you that Jesus began his ministry, his public ministry, with the ordinance of baptism. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Jesus is now going to end his ministry, close his ministry, by observing the second ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper has its roots in the Jewish Passover that started in Exodus chapter 12. If you recall, the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians. Moses and Aaron were the spokesmen of God, and they went to Pharaoh nine times and said, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Pharaoh said, no, 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 nine times. So God has finally had enough. And God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and said, Listen, if you don't let my people go, the angel of death is going to visit. He's going to visit every single family in Egypt. And the angel of death is going to take the life of the firstborn. You will let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I will not. And so, this night is called Passover. The angel of death visited Egypt and took the life of the firstborn of every single family in Egypt. Now, the only ones who would be spared, the only ones who would be passed over from the angel of death would be the families that did three things. The families who slew a lamb. The families who took the blood of that lamb that was slain and put it on the top and sides of the front door entrance to their home. And then thirdly, they took the meat of the lamb that was slain. The blood went on the top and sides of the doorpost of entrance to their home. The meat was then put on a skewer and roasted. 
with bitter herbs and eaten with unleavened bread. The families who chose to do this when the angel of death was making his rounds, when he saw the blood on the door, when he saw the roasted lamb on the skewer, he passed them by. That's why it's called Passover. And this Passover, from the very first time it was practiced, was practiced every year after that. It was to be a forever remembrance to God's people that death is avoided and life is found and continued through the shedding of blood and the giving of life of an innocent lamb. You see, God is preparing for what? He's already instructing and teaching his people through the Passover that there will need to be a lamb, and that lamb's blood must be shed, and that lamb's body must be consumed in suffering. And so the Jewish people, on April 14th, of every calendar year would observe the Passover, a remembrance of the very first Passover. And this went on for hundreds of years, ladies and gentlemen, until we get to the 22nd chapter of Luke. Now it's interesting, Jeremiah the prophet had predicted that there was going to come a time when no longer an animal lamb will be slain. No longer will the, the blood of that animal be shed. No longer will the meat of that animal be eaten. That's the old covenant. And Jeremiah predicted in Jeremiah 31, 31 that there is coming a day when the old covenant is going to be set aside and a new covenant will come. That's why when we read Luke chapter 22, verse 20, if you've got your Bibles open still, I emphasize to you what Jesus said was he's preparing to drink the cup of the Passover. He said, this cup is the new what? Testament, but I told you there's another word for that. Covenant. This is the new covenant in whose blood? My blood, said Jesus which will now be shed for you. So what's the Lord's Supper about? It's about the new covenant. No longer would an animal be slain for the temporary atonement for the sins of man. In the new covenant, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, would become the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said it well. Behold, we saw Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus would become the Lamb of God. Jesus would shed His blood on a cross called Calvary. He would offer up His body as a suffering sacrifice. Why would He do that? To pay for our sins. that when the angel of death comes, he will not take our life, 
for our life has been protected in Him. We have been spared judgment and we've been given life. We've been passed over. The upper room was the first Lord's Supper. It was the first communion service of the new covenant. The old has been done away. The new is coming forth. The bread that would be eaten in that upper room would represent the body of Jesus that would take on our sin and the death that goes with it. The juice that was drank in that upper room would be symbolic of the blood of Jesus that would wipe away all of our sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So just as the Jewish families observe Passover, we observe the Lord's table. Just as it was a reminder to them of what God did in Exodus 12, that first Passover, when the angel of death passed by and did not take their firstborn because of the blood and because of the lamb, Passover is a reminder to us of what? Right there. That our sins have been forgiven. We've been spared judgment. We've been given new life. Because the Lamb of God gave His life and shed His blood on our behalf. You know, once again, you might say, well, Pastor, this is such easy stuff. Why do you, why do you teach us this? This is, this is stuff we learned in middle school. I teach you this again because, again, pastors and churches and religion do a good job of messing people up on what is true. It's amazing how things that are so simple can be made so complex. Things that are so plain can be so distorted when you get religion involved. So for the record, let me close by sharing some things about the Lord's Supper that I hope you won't find redundant, but I think need to be said. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, is not a sacrament. Although some call it a sacrament, it's not a sacrament. It cannot give grace to save, nor can it give grace to sanctify. The Lord's Supper cannot save you, cannot add to your salvation, cannot keep your salvation. Okay? It's a symbolic reminder of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Just like baptism is a symbolic reminder of your public identification with Jesus. The Lord's Supper and the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, are only symbolic reminders of the body and blood of Jesus. They are not the body of Jesus, and they're not the blood of Jesus, 
nor do they change into that. Are you listening to your pastor? The bread is a symbolic of the body of Jesus. The juice is symbolic of the blood of Jesus. The bread does not turn into the body of Jesus when a priest blesses it and you eat it. The blood does not... The, the, the juice does not turn into the blood of Jesus when a priest blesses it and you drink it. That's not true, as some would teach. Communion is a reminder to one and all of what Jesus did for us on the cross. 1 Corinthians 11 says it's, we are to remember at communion when we come together, come together. We're to remember what Jesus did. We're to reflect on what we're doing in response to him. Are we living a consecrated life? If somebody dies for you, are you living for them? And it's also a reminder in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again that we're to remember his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. We're to live for him as we should. And we do that until he comes for us again, which could be any moment. You see, these are ordinances that we practice together on a regular basis as a church family. We had, when someone gives their life to Jesus, we all come together so we can see their public identification with Christ. When we come together for communion, we come together and jointly through words and songs and other instruments, we remember what Jesus did for us. May we never forget. Are you saved? Are you? Are you living like a saved person if you're saved? I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for a salvation that doesn't affect the way you live. You say, well, I said the prayer. Well, you can say the prayer 10,000 times. You can be baptized 10,000 times. The greatest evidence that you have that you have changed from the old man that's buried to the new man that's living is you live different. I didn't say live perfect, you live different. Are you looking for Jesus? Do you understand he could come at any moment? I think some of us live as if it's going to be 50 years from now. You know he could come back right now? We're out of here. Would you still be here? The Bible says when he comes, he'll come in the twinkling of an eye. You know what the twinkling of an eye? That's the batting of an eye. You blink and we're gone. <laughs> Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.